Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, session number eight. This edition of the podcast was recorded on my trip to London last week, where I went to speak at the Allfire Conference. And um, being on the road, I didn't have my usual recording gear. So this audio is not quite the same quality as what you've been used to, but I think the editor has done a great job and it's still you can certainly still hear it. So at the Allfire Conference, as I said in my blog post, uh, my favorite session of the day was from Cormac Leach, who is an analyst at Liberum Capital. And he, he had a fascinating presentation talking about not just the UK peer-to-peer lending industry, but uh, but the industry globally and specifically also here in the US. So I sat down with Cormac and his team at Liberum in their offices last week and did this on-the-record interview. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm here in the Liberum offices in London uh, with Cormac Leach and Karen Lucy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hey, how are you? Okay. So I want to get started off, and obviously want to get some background on Liberum. Not everyone's heard of your organization, so if you could just tell me you know, what it is you guys do. Sure. So we're an independent stockbroker, uh, helping companies raise money and providing independent research on a whole range, 18 sectors right across the UK and Europe. And we've raised £11 billion for uh, various companies over the years. Uh, we have a, quite a large financial team. You know, We have four professionals looking at a whole range of finance companies, including banks, and recently become really interested in peer-to-peer. Okay. And how, how many people do you have working in your, your organization? Um, I don't even know. It keeps growing, actually. Yeah, what do we have? About 150? 160 at the moment. 160? 160. Okay, so you're a decent size. That's, um, yeah, and so it's, are you, so Cormac, are you actually dedicated to P2P lending or this is part of just part of what you cover? In theory, this is just part of what I cover, but in practice over the last three or six months, we've been full on, you know, 80 per, 90% of our clients have been looking at this sector. Actually. Okay. And what about, what about you, Karen? Are you the same? I'm pretty much dedicated to peer-to-peer at the moment as well, but then I work under Cormac, so okay. doing bits of other things as well. But about, I would say almost 100% of Karen's time has been focused on this. We're also doing quite a bit of corporate finance and peer-to-peer as well. So between the corporate finance and covering trust study, I think Karen's been flat out on peer-to-peer. Right, right. So... So is your is your focus on the UK, continental Europe, globally? What where's your focus? Yeah, so well, we, we operate in the UK, and so most of our actual like revenue generating business is in the UK. But to understand the bigger sectors, we've been looking very much at uh, what's going on in the US because you know the US is ahead of Europe to a large extent in terms of what the key drivers are. And for example, Lending Club is clearly the elephant in the room, you know, two thirds of volumes in the space, right. excluding China, of course. Right. Um, so we really need to, you know, pay close attention to what's happening in the US. Okay. Okay. So have you, have you put together actual deals in this space for raising money? I mean, what's, what, what's some of the things you've done? We have. We've, do, we've done several things, actually. So last year, 2013, we founded and sold a business which aims at setting up a relatively large, you know, perhaps £200 million closed-end fund looking to raise permanent capital to lend onto peer-to-peer platforms and also takes you know, strategic equity stakes in peer-to-peer platforms. So we, we founded and sold that business to Marshall Ice, uh, right. and that was, I think, at the end of October. October. Uh, and then after that, we uh, we worked very closely with a, a Swedish listed company called Trustbuddy, raised 15 million euros for them. 
and then in January this year, uh, Gen 14, we raised 15 million pounds for Zopa as a private placement. Okay. That's good. And, and it's worth saying, actually, we're working closely with several platforms currently looking to, you know, put in some, some equity and also looking for other flavors of, of, of capital, frankly, mezzanine, quasi equity, underwriting capital, and also some permanent wholesale term debt to lend on the platforms. So I would say we're, we're quite actively looking at, um, you know, connecting investors with the, with, with the space. Okay, great. So I know that you, you gave a pre- presentation earlier this week on um, at, at, Alt, at the Altify conference, which I found personally fascinating, and it's going to be in the show notes for everybody listening uh, on the on Lend Academy's website. And it's I recommend everybody take spend some time and and, and go through this presentation because it's, it's it's excellent. One of the things that I found personally most fascinating about your presentation was this idea about efficiency gains in banking or the lack thereof. And I mean, every industry, I can't think of another industry that hasn't, hasn't had massive efficiency gains over the last hundred years because of all the automation and all the technology. But you're, you're claiming that this is simply not true in banking. So can you, can you explain one, how you kind of came up with that idea and then, and the, and any, any of the numbers behind it? Sure. So, well, first of all, I'm a banks analyst, right? So I've been spending, you know, the best part of the last decade looking at banks. And, you know, if you spend any time looking at banks, you get a feel for how efficient they are. And, you know, the one thing jumps out as an analyst is there's a lot of scope for them to rip costs out, you know, in terms of, you know, whether it's overpaid fixed income traders or, you know, with too many branch staff or, you know, if you actually go in physically to a branch, you just see there are far too many people in the room and the technology feels like, you know, it's from the 1970s at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have, you know, quite a lot of examples where the IT has simply failed in the UK. You know, RBS, ATM is just simply not working, for example. You know, so you don't need to be a genius to figure out that the IT the banks are working with is not state of the art. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole body of academic research that suggests that, you know, the banks are not efficient. Uh, we leaned quite a bit on, on a chap called uh, Thomas Philippon from the NYU University. He's a professor there. He's posted some really good research in my view. And you know, he's leaned on the likes of Schiller and Bernanke and a whole range of top-notch academics to produce this um, analysis looking over 100 years at the relative efficiency, the unit cost of financial intermediation. So looking at the costs or the revenues, if you like, the net revenues of the banking System as a percentage of the intermediated assets. And what, so, hang on, what do you mean by intermediated assets? Just explain that. So, that just means that you know you, you have a large pool of money. So, you have a large pool of people who have money to invest, and then you have a large pool of people who need money. And then, simply connecting those two pools of money, that's intermediation. Okay. So, I mean, and, and that's to a large extent what the financial services sector is doing. I mm-hmm. think they've kind of forgotten that that's what they're doing. They kind of think they're there to line their own pockets. But in <laughs> principle, they're there to connect those two pools of capital. And, you know, naturally, Darwinian competition should force that process to happen as efficiently as possible. And it's my view, actually, because the, the, the current structure of the financial system is inefficient because you have a relatively small number of oligopolistic players who are heavily regulated and therefore heavily to some extent subsidized by the government. So you don't have the forces of competition unleashed on the sector, keeping everybody honest and driving innovation and driving efficiency. Where, for example, you do in technology or you do in retail trade, you do in wholesale trade. And I think it's really about the financial plumbing. So if you think very simplistically, we have several huge pipes and systemically, we can't afford to have anything happen to these pipes, so they're they're overly protected. And right. You don't have right. the extreme competition that you should have. And, and in my view, peer to peer brings that competition 
into the space. So it's extremely helpful for uh, healthy for everybody. So even with I know like in the UK there's you know there's five big banks, but the US has you know, there's four big banks and then there's you know dozens of pretty big banks and then hundreds or thousands of mediums to small banks. So I mean, so even with all that competition, they have you're still saying that this is this is an inefficient market still and not much not really any more efficient than it was 100 years ago yeah i would make a couple points there i mean one is that because everybody's been gearing up i mean if you look at the ratios of private debt to gdp or corporate debt to gdp or government debt to gdp debt to gdp ratios have been rising so everybody feels like they're getting richer so there hasn't been that kind of price sensitivity or that cost consciousness that you should have in the space because everyone's seeing you know their house going up in value you know whatever it is five or ten percent per annum so they're not that price sensitive in terms of the cost of the mortgage i mean that's one point to make the other is that everyone has access to the lender of last resort the federal reserve so to a large extent you have a subsidized system and, and also it's heavily regulated. So the barriers to entry are reasonably large and you know, you know better than me, but my understanding is that in terms of maximum number of deposits any one bank can have in a particular region, it's quite heavily controlled so that you don't have you know, the forces of competition as strong as they should be in my opinion. Right. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. So one of the, another slide that you had that I want to, I'm just going to go, actually for people who are following along, if you're in front of a computer, go, go open up the slide deck because that was, that was slide number seven. And I'm actually going through some of these slides here, which uh, I've, I think are very, very interesting. Because one thing, the other thing I wanted to talk about is switching gears. You made the point about peer-to-peer lending being competitive in a high or a low interest rate environment. I'm on slide 11 of this presentation. So and I, and I, you've got a chart here that shows, you know, basically the peer-to-peer, um, the, the, the benefit to borrowers, the benefit to lenders is still going to maintain when we have a more, let's say, a traditional interest rate environment where rates are not close to zero, they're up around four or five percent. So what's your, can you explain your rationale behind that, behind that thinking? Sure. Um, so when we were going around, you know, kind of telling everyone how fantastic peer-to-peer was, one of the kind of criticisms that we kept coming across was, yeah, peer-to-peer is doing very well right now because interest rates are very low. Uh, when in, interest rates normalize, and, you know, obviously another question, when they will normalize, but when they normalize, um, the peer-to-peer will be less attractive. So we fundamentally disagree with that because the key point to make is that peer-to-peer is about twice as efficient as, as, as banking in terms of intermediating uh, savers and borrowers. So the key thing to look at for a bank is, is the gap between the rate at which people are borrowing and the rate at which they can invest, the, the rate that they can get on a term deposit. And for banks in the UK, um, it's about 4% currently between the rate at which a consumer can borrow and a term deposit rate. So that's 4%. For a peer-to-peer, the, the cost of intermediation, uh, for, when you combine the cost of the lender and the borrower, comes to about 2%. Um, and so as rates go up, all those rates move in lockstep. So the relative gap for a person you know, using a bank either on the borrowing or lending side, relative to peer-to-peer, everything moves together. So peer-to-peer stays as competitive in a high-rate environment as it is currently. So you're saying when rates, when rates go to 5%, that, that, that 4% difference is going to maintain whatever... The exactly. All the rates move more or less linearly so that the relative competitiveness of peer-to-peer uh, persists. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So then let's talk about taxes and the impact. I mean, I, we were just talking with Giles at Zopa and he was explaining how about the, 
the UK the UK investor does have, have has a disadvantage because they the, the they pay interest on the tax and then you but you can't deduct the Correct. losses. The, the losses are not offsetable yeah. against, against which is not the, the case in the US. Um, but right. so, right. firstly, you talked about ISAs. Firstly, can you explain what an ISA is? Sure. So, so we, we, yeah, we, we had a vague idea what they were, but just you know, had a meeting. You actually checked exactly what they are. <laughs> so it's an individual savings account, and currently, you know, anybody living resident in the UK can put is it about eleven thousand pounds into one of these accounts, and essentially, it means that all of the earnings you make from securities that you put into that investment account, you know, be they bonds, equities, what have you. They're all uh, tax-free. Mm-hmm. As it currently stands, you can't put a peer-to-peer loan into your ISA. Right. Which means that if you, for example, were to put some money onto the Zopa platform, if you're lending on the Zopa platform, you have to pay tax on, on the gains. And the problem with that is that you know Zopa is a good example, for example, because they are very low-risk, very high-quality loans. But you know the, the the flip side of that is that the, the gross yields you're getting are are less le, less you know they're simply lower. So you know if you take a, a worked example, we like to look at a, a you know high rate uh, taxpayer in the UK who says has a marginal tax rate of forty five percent. If he puts his money onto the Zopa platform, he's getting a you know a, a net yield, an expected net yield of about four point six percent. But then he has to pay tax on that, so his effective after tax return is two point five. However, if he was to instead put his money into a cash ISA, he'd be getting 2.8%. So as the regulation currently stands, it's more logical for him to put his money into a cash ISA. Right. Now, when the regulation changes, and we expect uh, peer-to-peer loans to become ISAble in the UK in the second half of this year, second half oh, really? of 14, at which point, you know, if this the, the guy in our example were to put his money into Zopa loans, instead of getting 2.5%, he's getting 4.6%. Right. 4.6% clearly much more attractive than 28 And therefore, we think you could see a surge in volumes in the UK. And, you know, we, we did some analysis, you know, and it wasn't particularly sophisticated. We said, what would happen if the peer-to-peer uh, asset class was to attract 10% of the of the total money in, in cash and, and equity ISIS. And the total amount in cash and, and equity ISIS currently is uh, is about four hundred and forty billion pounds. So if they took ten uh, percent of that, forty four billion, that's equivalent to about a fifty fold increase in terms of the size of peer to peer balances right. in the UK. So you know that would be fantastic for Zopa and the other peer to peer platforms. So so this regulation is has is definitely coming or is it probably coming? What are your because that's well, huge. Because in the US, yeah. we've had it's an ISA is an IRA, and we're allowed to put in uh, what's it fifty five hundred dollars a year, I think, right now. And yeah, that it's it's it slowly increases uh, as and if you're if you're fifty or over, you get to have an extra thousand dollars. But you can put anything in there, yeah. pretty much. Well, not anything, but you can certainly put P two P loans. But yeah. so that and we find that there's I, mean, I don't have the numbers in, off the top of my head, but there's a huge chunk of assets in Lending Club and Prosper coming in through IRAs. So yeah. I would say the same thing's going to happen over here. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think it's very high probability that we do see, see peer-to-peer become ISAble, if not in the second half of this year, then you know, almost certainly early next year. And there, you know, there are quite a few indications that we may actually get an announcement in the budget. So we get a budget in the UK in April. Right. And we expect that, um, you know, they almost certainly will, um, uh, well, I mean, we know for a fact that peer-to-peer will become regulated by the FCA, that's the Financial Conduct Authority in right. uh, 
in the UK. Um, they're going to regulate the, the peer-to-peer platforms in the UK starting from next month. And then once they become regulated, it's much easier to see them becoming ISABLE and you know the government you know officially promoting them as you know a legitimate investment asset class. And you know there's some technical issues that they need to work out in terms of exactly how the mechanics will work. But we expect they will announce that they will become ISABLE, and then there will be a, a lead-in period of perhaps three or six months. You know, will, which will allow everybody to prepare to to make the stuff ISABLE. Right. And I know, for example, Zopa is looking at potentially setting up a fund, to, you know, themselves, so that people can actually, you know, invest in that fund. And they simply need to notify the government that you know they have ISA money in this fund, uh, so that you know to prevent people from putting money into the the, the ISA with Zopa and, and also claiming an ISA with someone else. Right. Right. Sure. No, I, I can see that. Yeah, that's going to be huge because not only does it give people a, a tax benefit, but it also puts a, another stamp of approval. So you got this, you got the regulation that's coming, uh, which gives some, which gives a certain level of um, approval for the industry, and then that would be, you know, I, I can totally see how that's just going to yeah, I mean, really the, drive it. The other point to make is that the Bank of England and, and the UK government they're, they're very keen to promote peer to peer because they see it as an additional credit channel. You know. I'm, I'm guessing you know your listeners will be very much aware that UK and European banks are deleveraging, uh, so the banks are under pressure to build up their capital ratios, and they have less capital than they used to have to make credit available to the economy. So the extent that peer-to-peer can step in and supplement some of that lack of credit provision, uh, you know, that's very helpful for for the government, and you know, the central bank is quite keen to promote it actually. So you know it's quite useful to have uh, you know the authorities and the regulator actually actively promoting your your your, your sector. Yeah, I know. And then you've got the whole you know the whole thing about the British Business Bank, you know, which is you know they've they've given peer to peer lending. You know they've got they're obviously on funding circle, and then you know, I, you know as Giles was saying, they're actually lending on Zopa as well. I think well. they put ten million onto Zopa. Yeah, that's right. seventy five million they've invested in peer to peer lending. Seventy five million in total yeah. across. Three three platforms. Yeah, see, we we uh, we don't have that support in the US, which would be would be a, a big a big deal just from a PR perspective to say that you know the government is supporting it so directly. No, no, that that's related to super PACs and uh, <laughs> lobby uh, actively well, controlling the government. We can't open that uh, can of worms, but yes, it's, it could have something to do with it. Okay, so. It seemed like, like at, at the All Fight Conference, it was quite interesting to me to see how much interest there was in the Lending Club IPO from uh, a bunch of British financial services guys. And you had you had your own slide on there, which page twenty five. Page twenty five. There we go. You you talk about it. So um, I want to actually touch on Trust Buddy in a little bit because they are they actually are public. But sure. firstly, let's just talk about the Lending Club IPO. And you you came up with this interesting uh, valuation of um, six point two billion dollars that Lending Club may be valued at if when, when they IPO. Can you explain how you came up with this um, relatively high number? Well, we we don't think it's particularly high actually. Um, you know, if you look at where some of the tech companies in the US are trading, uh, it doesn't seem that demanding, frankly. I mean, what we did is standard, you know, one on one finance. We just took a discounted cash flow. Analysis. We're looking at the free cash flow that we think will come off Lending Club over the next uh, 10, 20 years and discount it back. Now, the key question is, you know, first of all, how quickly is Lending Club going to grow? And, you know, we have our forecasts and, you know, we can we can unpack those. But, you know, we have it growing reasonably quickly, perhaps 50, 60 percent per annum, you know, over the course of the next 10 years. And then we make some assumptions about how much operational leverage they have. So, you know, how quickly the costs will grow. And, 
once you have those assumptions, you can you can estimate what the free cash flow will be. And then the question is, at what rate do you discount those cash flows back to the present? Now, when we're raising money for TrustBuddy and Zopa, and you know, we're asking around, you know, where are the VCs, you know, looking at this in terms of the risk profile, we're hearing that people are actually using cost of equity as high as thirty percent to put money into some of these early stage privately held. Companies to us that feels far too high. Mm-hmm. So when we're doing a DCF, a lending club, we're using a cost of equity of fifteen percent. And you know, our view is that when lending club is you know well understood, um, you know, and has already got a large free float on the stock market, we think the cost of equity will probably drop down to about ten percent. Hmm. But initially, fifteen percent feels you know uh, there's enough risk premium in there to, to allow for this being a relatively young company. So but if you use a 15% cost of equity and our assumptions for revenues and costs, you know, $6.2 billion just drops out of the model. And, you know, that equates to probably something around, uh, what, 25, 30 times uh, 2014 revenues uh, that we see for the business. Um, and last valuation, as I'm sure you'll know, is was $2.3 billion, I think, which is equivalent okay. to about 12 times for revenues. Yeah, so so I, I know I think we've got a bet, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do I have think a bet. It's going to be over five billion, and uh, you know, have to double up on that. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll keep it as it is for now, but it's because you know I, I I continue to be surprised, so I may end up being uh, being surprised here as well. So are you are you finding like are you hearing from your UK investors interest in this IPO or is this just something that you're putting together personally? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so we did this all five conference on Tuesday, and you know our um, editor and you know publishing guys suggested we 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 send the the pack to all our investors. We sent it out yesterday morning, and we got you know a very large number of hits. We, I think we got a record number of hits on the research note. You know, multiples of what we get on any other research piece. So there's an immense amount of interest in this space. And you know, what's interesting for us is, you know, Karen is the analyst uh, covering TrustBuddy. And, you know, TrustBuddy is the only listed peer-to-peer company in the world currently. Mm-hmm. And we think it's immensely cheap. I mean, it's trading on about five times 2014 revenues currently. You know, that compares with the last valuation on TrustBuddy 12 times. Say it again. Sixty percent discount to to lending clubs uh, valuation multiples, and you know if you if you do the same DCF calculation, you get it's worth about half a billion dollars, and the current market cap is about 0.14 billion. So you know, there's a, if our DCF analysis is correct, it's got you know roughly three x upside. Right. And so, can you just explain for people what I mean? Where is TrustBuddy? What are they, and how they operate? Sure. Do you want to do that? Trustbuddy's model is slightly different to Lending Club in that they have a payday model. So the loans are 30-day loans for a standard 12% interest to the bar. So the, a lender has roughly worked out as an average of a 13% yield annualized mm-hmm. over the last number of years. The lender doesn't get charged any fees. Currently, Trustbuddy are operating in about seven geographies on the borrower side and 11 on the lender side, including the US and the UK. Okay. So that the lender can decide which geography to to lend into. Yeah, and what's really interesting about TrustBuddy is that we're starting to see. I think in the US you already have a very large amount of institutional capital and not very much retail money. Whereas in Europe it's the flip side. So we right. have a huge amount of retail money, and and institutional money is just starting to learn and and invest in in the peer to peer space. For TrustBuddy, we we have spoken to several people that are actively looking and working with their teams to put institutional capital onto the TrustBuddy platform. So you can get this huge gearing because they have a huge number of borrowers looking to borrow, and they have a lack of of, of people, a lack of capital to lend to them. Mm-hmm. So as this institutional capital 
lands on the platform, you get this huge boost to the revenues. So we actually see the what the revenues growing 150 percent or something yeah. in 2014. Yeah, volumes grow alone 25 percent month on month into January, simply just because of the institutional capital that came onto the platform in January. Mm. So 12.3 million euros came on in January from the December transaction. Right. So. But there's more capital coming in the second quarter. So and there's if everything goes to plan, there will be multiples of that again. So we, we can see the revenues is growing exponentially, frankly, for hmm. several years. Okay. Well, I should point out too that I, I don't really cover payday lending um, at Lend Academy. So I, I, I know you frown on it. I frown on it a little bit because <laughs> I just, I just, uh, I have some ethical uh, issues with it, but uh, I know that it's a public company and they, they are providing a service that is, you know, they're doing very well. So. I think, I mean, my view is that, you know, the more people that come into payday lending and compete in the space, the more the, you know, the kind of the supernormal returns will shrink and, you know, the better deal, you know, the guys who actually need money will get. So, right. You know, and that's, that, that's, a good, that's a good thing. They need to get, there needs to be, I mean, the whole, uh, the concept of payday lending is you know the thing that I worry about is it just it, it just leads to a death spiral which leads to bankruptcy and that's um, yeah that's not good well for a death spiral death spiral makes it sound like the guy is actually going to die right no, just, a debt debt spiral he just has death. to put it, he, he just has to uh, put his hand up and say you know can't pay won't pay and just walk away and you know it starts again right right <laughs> <laughs> okay so. One thing I just want to—I I, you didn't really cover this, and I'm just curious about it. You you talk about this Liberum Altfi Index, which is establishing a range of data on the UK peer-to-peer and alternative finance sector. Just explain what that is exactly. Sure. So we've teamed up with a guy called David Stevenson, who uh, I don't know if you've seen his columns, The Adventurous Investor and The Week NFT. Um, you know he's. He's a very entrepreneurial journalist who has got his own, he actually ran, ran the old Fi conference on Tuesday. Right. Yep. Um, he's very interested in setting up a, you know a, a whole series of benchmarks so people can understand what's going on in UK and European peer to peer. So we already have some volume metrics on the on the Altfi website where you can just see you know which platforms have done how much volume and how fast they're growing. But within the next couple of months, we intend to set up a whole range of metrics where you can actually measure and see what the net yields by cohort have been historically and start to compare the returns you can get from different platforms. Because as it currently stands, it's actually really difficult to, you know, in a robust way, evaluate you know, how attractive it's been to put money onto the different platforms because they all represent their performance in a different way. And as right. you can imagine, they all try to represent the data in a way that sure. makes them look as, sure. as, as, as good as possible. Mm-hmm. And frankly, some of them are growing so quickly that there's an ability for them to, you know, I would say, conceal some of the less well-performing cohorts simply by virtue of the, the huge growth um, right. they yeah. Okay. So are you are you covering just the big three on in in this index, like Zopa Funding Circle, Rate Setter, or who are you covering? I think we'll cover everyone who we feel is is material. I mean, so you know, I, I don't, you know, I was, I think we probably have about ten platforms on there currently. But you know, as the sector grows, that can easily increase to you know pick a number. I mean, we we don't have any, you know, we're not going to set a threshold. You know that you know we're only going to look at the top twenty or fifty, right? Right. As big as the sector gets, we're happy to to grow with it. Yeah, it's one thing that's curious. I'm curious to get your take on, and that is that there are so many platforms. The, U- the U.S. seems to be lagging behind the U.K. in this department. Like at the at the Altfi conference, there was a huge number of um, you know, consumer platforms, peer you know, peer to business platforms. I mean, some of them are very small and you know really you know getting going, and they're and they're you know they're totally dwarfed by the big three. 
But um, it seems like there's there's certainly a very robust entrepreneurial environment here in this industry. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if it's that in the US, as you were saying earlier, you know, there's a huge number of individual banks and, you know, there's probably quite a healthy, perhaps more efficient financial system in the US. Uh, I'm just speculating. Whereas in the UK, I think we have, you know, our big four, our big five banks, not particularly competitive. You know, we're just going through a financial crisis. So a lot of the smaller players have kind of, you know, kind of shut down or, you know, been absorbed. Um, so there probably, frankly, isn't as much competition over here. So there's probably a lot more low-hanging fruit, and, and it's possibly more obviously an opportunity in, in the UK mm-hmm. for peer-to-peer to get started, um, you know, given just simply less, you know, a, you know, a weaker value proposition from the existing incumbents. Right. So do you, and do you, when you're looking at these companies, do you look at, at their, like their underwriting models to see if you think that they're doing a good job or is that sort of beyond the scope of your analysis? No, I mean, uh, Min is sitting beside me here and we, we, we've uh, built some huge Excel spreadsheets and we have pretty fast computers here and they, they do, <laughs> they've been falling over regularly while we've been crunching the data. I mean, what we did was we basically downloaded the entire loan book of Lending Club and Funding Circle and uh, Prosper and we put all the loans into different cohorts and actually just work out an IOR by gold seeking iteratively to find out what rate of interest actually just you know, you get from each cohort. So, and that is the right way to do it. I mean, I think there are some blogs, um, I'm not sure if your blog does it, but certainly some blogs already doing that kind of IOR calculation by cohort to work mm-hmm. out the net, the net yields. And then we're also projecting expected losses for loans that haven't matured yet. So, you know, you can kind of extrapolate the existing loss curves to get a sense where the loans will end up because as I'm sure you know, you know, on day two of a loan, it's not going to fall over. Right. Right. So if you, I mean, if you, you've written, you know, billions of loans yesterday, then your credit quality is going to look probably quite good in relative to what it will ultimately become. So I think it's important to have a consistent methodology to really accurately measure the relative returns. And I think, frankly, that's one thing the regulator hasn't shown any indication of planning to do and, and really should do. You know, so I think it's incumbent on the regulator to encourage a basis to make an apples to apples comparison mm-hmm. of what risk and what returns you can expect to get from various platforms. So so how do you compare with the UK returns with the US returns? The US obviously, you know, you're talking to Zopra Rate Setter and even Funding Circle, they're definitely going their interest rates are lower. Yeah, um, that's true. Relative I mean, to the relative to yeah, the US. It's, it's a good point. I mean I think frankly the US platforms have been willing to have a higher risk appetite. So They've been more willing to work with people that are consolidating their credit card debt, mm-hmm. and they've been more willing to tolerate higher loan losses, and therefore, unsurprisingly, you take more risk, you get a better return. I think Prosper's done about 9.3 net yields over the last mm-hmm. couple of years, and I think Lending Club's doing just slightly under 7%. So, you know, you take more risk, you do get a better net yield. Whereas in the UK, um, Zopa and uh, Ratesetter, because they have had to build their businesses organically, um, and establish trust slowly over time. They've, I would say, they've erred on the side side of being too cautious. Right. So you know, I would comfortably tell widows and orphans to put their entire pensions into Zopa loans because <laughs> you, know, you know, hell could freeze over and you know, your your Zopa loan losses might go up ten basis points. Right? <laughs> they're incredibly risk averse, and right. you know, try it yourself. Apply for a loan on Zopa and see if you get accepted. You know, they're they're really tough actually. <laughs> right. Um, which which I find quite reassuring. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, okay. I wouldn't want to lend money on any platform that was willing to lend money to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, let's this final point here. I want to talk about this, this slide that you had that was this really interesting to me. You talked about how 
you know, the peer-to-peer sector, it's like, you know, it's like the Walmart, you know, Ryanair, which is which, uh, the low-cost airline over here. We, um, that, that's, you know, Walmart, we all know the story about Walmart and the, how, how they're, they lower the costs for, you know, for whole, a whole segment of retail. You're saying that the cost, the, the peer-to-peer sector has the potential to save the UK an estimated 2% of GDP per annum. So can you expand on that and how you, how you kind of came up with that number? Yeah, sure. I mean, so there's a whole bunch of research done by, again, this chap, Thomas Philippon at NYU, and, and also um, by a couple of guys at Harvard. And, you know, we can, we can get you links to those papers if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, they've done work looking at the efficiency of different sectors, like, you know, in the intermediation business, like wholesale trade or retail trade. And they've looked at how much, what percentage of their uh, equipment spending has been IT. And unsurprisingly, you know, people realize computers and internet were quite helpful in the intermediation businesses. They've invested more in IT, and sure enough, their efficiency has gone up. So their their their, their cost as a percentage of GDP. So their the sector's revenue as a percentage of GDP has come down just because they've got more efficient. They've competed against each other, and you know they've made they've made room in terms of the overall economy for other sectors to grow and develop and hire people, and and, and that's healthy for the economy. Mm-hmm. Banks have done the opposite. They've invested in a lot of IT. To I would say bamboozle everybody with with science and you know justify charging higher and higher fees and you know taking all the value for themselves and you know it's grown like you know I'd say grown like a weed frankly um, you know the 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 revenues of the banking sector as a percent of GDP have grown from you know around four and a half percent back in 1970 up to about nine percent you know around 2010 and you know if you just do regression analysis versus other sectors it looks like the financial sector should be able to operate at just about say 7% of gdp so just by virtue of shrinking from 9% down to 7% that frees up 2% of total gdp uh, to be deployed elsewhere you know and 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 the way to think about that in real life i mean i think of you know all those atm or risk managers sitting in banks that could be, you know, redeployed as teachers or nurses or doctors, what have you, you know, adding value in the economy that are kind of tied up, you know, wasting their resources, you know, kind of clogging up the financial system. Hmm. So you're, you're a banking analyst that's pretty bearish on the banking sector, it sounds like. Well, actually, I'm bullish on banks in the short term because I don't think anyone is going to really believe what I just said. I mean, I think, uh, I'm going to put it differently. I mean, I'm sure Lend Academy listeners will agree. Well, I mean, but the people who are investing in banks, right. you know, the Fidelities, the Black Rocks, you know, the large institutions, they're not ready for the story yet. Right. And, you know, the banks are quite cheap. I mean, George Soros was just uh, recently saying that, you know, the banking sector in Europe is actually a bit depressed now because everyone's worried about the stress test the ECB is about to do. So in terms of just raw valuations, as long as the wheels don't come off the sector for 10 or 15 years, they actually are quite cheap. It's just, you know, what we're talking about here, you know, the peer-to-peer sector is very much a, a small acorn and it won't grow into an oak tree for 10 or 15 years. So, and frankly, if you're the CEO of a bank, you don't really care if peer-to-peer kills the banks in 10 years' time because you'll have sailed off into the sunset, you know, with all your you know, bonus <laughs> money and stock options and what have you. So there's a real agency problem that the banks have. And, and frankly, some of the investors, I, I think if you remember back in the dot-com days, people were talking about the end of bricks and mortar and worrying about online internet impacting the banks. And then, you know, that was kind of topical for about six or 12 months. And then everyone stopped talking about it and the banks had a great run. So now I think, you know, there's very little talk really in, in mainstream investment communities of, of this being an issue for banks. So I think we'll really need to get onto the front page of the FT or the Economist or whatever 
and then maybe people start to actually say, okay, maybe we should all start worrying about this. All right. Okay. Well, well said. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Cormac. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, be very interested to see how, you know, how this all develops. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. So there you have it. Um, fascinating stuff, in my opinion. Could have chatted with Cormac and his team for hours. What I found most poignant, really, the takeaway that I got from my interview with him was that the traditional banking system has really not improved very much. And here we have finally a way to make it more efficient. And Cormac has done a lot of work in, in quantifying that. And we have the numbers that he, that he just mentioned that really get me excited this is this is a this is something that is going to be great for the economy. It's not going to be great for banks in the long run, but it's going to be great for consumers and great for the economy where we'll have now a more efficient system and people can divert their resources elsewhere. So on that note, I will sign off and uh, we'll have another edition of the podcast coming up that I recorded on my trip to London with uh, the leaders of the major platforms there. That's uh, that's coming up again soon. I'll talk to you next time.